You give Teller from Jerusalem 20 minutes, and he'll give you the education of a lifetime. King of the storytellers and the Shakespeare of the Torah world, here is Rabbi Hanok Teller. Welcome everyone to Teller from Jerusalem, and I'm your host, Hanok Teller. It's our great honor today to bring to our program someone I always revered and admired, Rabbi Stephen Weil, who had been a very important rabbi across the continent of America, Midwest, West Coast, and today he is the CEO of Friends of the Israel Defense Forces, doing fighting the great fight on behalf of our people and our country. Rabbi Weil, welcome. Rabbi Teller, thank you very much. It's an honor to be on, on your podcast. Thank you. That is ours. And I say that because our listeners are very devoted, so I'm not saying it's my honor, it's, it's our honor. Please, I mean, you, you're on the, you're, bring us up to speed. So I'm going to sort of take almost a, a counterintuitive angle in our conversation, and, and please feel free at any time to interject. Unfortunately, whether it's the mass media, whether it's in academia, I don't believe they portray what's happening with its global consequences. And, and, and what do I mean by that? If you look at the world today, let's assume there's 1.5 billion Muslims. Might be 1.6 billion. 1.4 billion are Sunni and 100 million are Shia. Sunnis and Shia both practice Islam, but what's the difference? A disagreement 1400 years ago over one simple question. Who would lead the Muslim community following the death of the Prophet Muhammad in 632 AD? Some believed that the Prophet Muhammad's cousin Ali was the rightful immediate heir, while others thought Abu Bakr, one of his oldest friends, was the better choice. Today, they share a lot of similar beliefs and practices, but Shia believe religious leadership must come from the Prophet Muhammad's descendants, while Sunnis don't. Of the 1.6 billion Muslims in the world, about 87 to 90% are Sunni and 10 to 13% are Shia. From the inception of Islam, literally going back to the 7th century throughout world history, Sunnah Islam has always dominated. In fact, to a certain degree, they've, they've oppressed and dominated the Shia. The Shia were viewed as heretics. The Shia were viewed as outcasts, as trouble, as people who corrupted the teachings of Muhammad, corrupted the Quran. For the first time in world history, for the first time in Islamic history, today you have Shia Islam dominant, where Sunni Islam is sitting there, we have the phrase in Yiddish, tittering. They're literally in fear and awe of this Islamic caliphate, this hegemonic Shia Islamic caliphate that goes from the Arabian Gulf all the way through the Mediterranean. So why are they rolling over? Because militarily, what's happened, if I can use an analogy, go back, let's say, let's go back two generations. Hitler had a Wehrmacht, he had a German army. But Hitler also had the SS. Now, to be a member of the SS, you had to take a personal oath of allegiance to the Fuhrer himself. Your blood type was tattooed on your chest. You had to go back into church records and show that you were pure Aryan. These were the most loyal Nazis as a group, probably the most lethal group of the SS, because their job was the annihilation of anyone who wasn't Aryan. The Jews, the gays, the Roma, the political prisoners, the socialists, the communists, that was their job was to eradicate them. And they, they, didn't, they didn't defend Germany. They didn't fight for Germany. They fought for Hitler personally, for his personal wars. So I'm using that as an analogy. The Iranian army today, after the Shia revolution in the 70s, brought to us by Jimmy Carter, 
after that revolution, so you have an Iranian army, that's not a particularly potent army, but what the Ayatollahs, the Supreme Ayatollahs and the Imams created was something called the IRGC, the Iranian Republican Guard Corps. The IRGC is a personal army whose job was to spread the revolution, to spread the Shia revolution. And over the course of the last 30 years, the IRGC has created six proxies, very dangerous proxies. Let's discuss them for a few minutes. The Houthis, you know, in Yemen, there's a, there's a fight between the Sunnis and the Shia. Iran began supporting the Houthis. The Houthi movement accepted Iran's support, but resisted direct interference. For the Iranians, the Houthis being a counterforce to Saudi interests was enough. The Houthis achieved initial military success, which provoked more Saudi-backed government force. The parties then reached a ceasefire agreement in 2010. A year later, when the Arab Spring reached Yemen, the Houthis were one of many groups calling for Saleh to step down. And when he did, the Houthis joined a national dialogue. But they were unhappy with the outcome, as it would reduce their territorial autonomy. The new president, Abdurrabu Mansur Hadi, also backed by the Saudis, had trouble stabilizing the country. He couldn't stop Al-Qaeda attacks, and fuel prices and unemployment began to skyrocket. This provoked a new rebellion. This time the Houthis allied with their once sworn enemy, former President Saleh, who still had military forces loyal to him. By 2015, Houthi rebels had toppled the government and gained control of Yemen's major cities. When they entered Sana'a, they rebranded themselves as Ansar Allah, or the helpers of God, and opened air traffic between Tehran and Yemen, promising cheap oil. Across the northern border, Saudi Arabia's King Salman bin Abdulaziz ascended the throne and saw the Houthis as a dangerous and an important pawn in the proxy war against Iran. Saudi Arabia formed a coalition with other Arab states backed by the US, UK and France and began strikes on the Houthis. Despite this, three years later, the Houthis still control large parts of the country and the war has been costly. The Houthis have been able to do many things to stop and take over what I would say the most important parts of Yemen, particularly Bab al-Mandab, or what we call in America, we refer to as the Straits of Yemen. You've got close to 30% of the world's oil passing through those very narrow straits. So take the Yamsuf, the Reed Sea, which we study in the Bible, we say in our prayers every day. When it hits the Gulf of Aden, there's a very, very narrow strait, which petroleum passes through, which a lot of the world's cargo passes through. I know that in the 1950s, Aden was the second largest port in the world, busiest port in the world, second only to New York. Wow, so, so that says it all. That says it all. So they, right now, they've, they've used Iranian weapons, and again, they are Shia, the Houthis. They've taken out Saudi Arabian oil fields. What, it, literally sitting with Muhammad bin Zayed, you know, of, of Abu Dhabi, the head of the, the Amir of the UAE, their 9-11 was when the Houthis took Iranian cruise missiles and killer drones and struck Abu Dhabi. They've taken out airstrips from Saudi Arabia. It's been very, very powerful. And now we've seen over the course of the last 80-some days their attack on Israel, trying to destroy, to annihilate the city of Eilat. Some of those missiles have been taken down by American ships in the, the Reed Sea. Some of them have been taken down by the Arrow 
what I call the anti-missile, the arrow system. But that's number one. And they're very, very powerful and they have significant weapons. And already they've cost the economy of the world significantly because you've got the major cargo companies that, that will no longer travel through the Straits of Yemen. But I mean, the world has a very low toleration for piracy and for damaging shipping lanes. Why is the world tolerating this? I wish I knew the answer to this. Because the reality is, America and the Allies should be taking out the Houthis. Mr. Taylor was uh, so significant in World War One. I. I mean, whenever there's a ship which is in danger, or you have U-boats going, that's enough to inflame anyone. Maybe under a different administration, maybe under a different foreign policy, they would be taken care of. But unfortunately, the world has not reacted, in my opinion, the way that it should. In other words, just like Israel is tolerating Hezbollah in the north, the world is tolerating the Houthis in Yemen. Yes. Despite the damage and the headache and the fear and the threats, tolerating. I mean, yeah, one, of the, one of the great yes. lessons from uh, the Munich Conference is that when you give, you give into dictation, you get more dictation. That, that's number one. Number two, in Western Iraq, now think about this, you know, we think about Jewish history, think about Christian history, think about world history. In, in, in the history of the world, people never were able to inhabit that desert land of Western Iraq, because it was uninhabitable. And you have a situation where if you were traveling, you would go following the Fertile Crescent. You'd follow the Euphrates and Tigris River into Turkey, into Syria, into Lebanon, through Israel, Israel being the Via Maris, the linchpin that would get you into North Africa, or if you were coming from Africa, going into Asia, going into Europe, you would never make a right-hand turn and go through Jordan and go through Western Iraq. It just was uninhabitable. So what's happened? For the first time in history, you've got these Shia militia. Shia militia, many of them are Iraqi Shia, some of them are Afghanistani Shia, Pakistani Shia. And they're sitting there, again, with, with what they call swarm drones. Imagine, like, chancing upon a bee's nest, and then 30 bees come out and attack you. That's how swarm drones work. They have cruise missiles. They have these killer drones. They're aimed at Israel. You have, in Syria, which is a no-man's land, nature pours a vacuum. The Syrian army, in the time of the, their revolution, was unable to control it. So you've got Russia that right now is caught up in the Ukraine, but still has two deep sea ports, Latakia. But primarily you've got Iran with their various Shia militias controlled and developed by the IRGC. Hezbollah is one of them. We'll talk about them in a couple of minutes. But again, they've imported Shia. You've got Alawites who are a branch of the Shia that are Syrian, but they've imported Shia from all over. And over the last eight and a half years, what Israel refers to as Mabam, Ma'aracha bin Amilchamot. Israelis call it the war between the wars. Every week, bar none, over the last eight and a half years, Israeli F-16s, F-35s, Apache helicopters have been striking caravans through Syria taking precision-guided missiles into Lebanon. Overnight, Israeli airstrikes hit dozens of Iranian targets in northern Syria. Chemical installations, biological installations, Shia militia that have established themselves to strike Israel from Syria. Just literally uh, 36 hours ago, one of the leaders of the Re Iranian Republican Guard Corps was struck in Syria, was, was eliminated. Israel didn't take responsibility for it, but the world assumes it was Israel. 
So that's number three. So you've got. I'm sorry, I have to interrupt you because yeah. what I don't quite understand, Israel has been decidedly trying to eliminate all the transport of sophisticated weaponry into Lebanon, but we're talking about an enormous stockpile that's in Lebanon already. Yeah. So how did that? They woke up late, or they? Uh, they woke up late, and they're they're successful with about eighty-five to ninety percent of it. Mm-hmm. So you've got you've got the Shia militia in Syria. We know the story with Gaza. We fought between Palestinian Islamic Jihad and Hamas, but they had 40,000 rockets aimed at Israel. We were wrong. It's well over 50,000 rockets. They, haven't been all, they have not all been eliminated because till this day, using civilian shields, they're still shooting those rockets at Israel. That's four. Number five is the area of Judea and Samaria. You know, Christians and Jews for 2,000 years have referred to this as Judea and Samaria. This is the heartland of the Bible. This is what, where, where all of our history was created. So there's a modern term that's been used for political reasons. They call it the West Bank, the West Bank of the Jordan River. But in that area, just over the last 80 days, Israel has arrested over 2,000 terrorists, has eliminated 260 terrorists who have tried killing Jews living in that area. Um, of those 2,000 terrorists, 1,100 of those are Hamas. Some of those are Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Some are other groups. So you've got them being funded by Iran, weaponry coming, you know, sneaking through the Jordanian border. Some of the weapons that the United States left in Afghanistan have been discovered there in Judea and Samaria. That's number five. But number six, which is the worst of all, because existentially it's the greatest threat to Israel, is the Hezbollah in Lebanon. So what exactly is Hezbollah? And why has its reach now spread so far from where it began. Let us unpack that for you. Part of the reason why Hezbollah is so difficult to pin down is that it's an organization that spans many categories. So Hezbollah is a political party. Uh, it is a social welfare organization. It has civilian uh, organizations. It is a standing militia larger, better funded, better armed than the Lebanese armed forces. And it is also a terrorist organization that engages in acts of terrorism at home in Lebanon and abroad, uh, as well as a transnational criminal organization. It considers itself a, at the same time, a state and a non-state actor. It was born in a, an environment where the state was absent for weak and where Hezbollah believed that it can fill all the gaps. Being a hybrid organization has advantages for Hezbollah. The many hats it wears are all a means to one end, spreading what it calls an ideology of resistance as far and as wide as possible. The Hezbollah who control a good part of Lebanon economically, politically, they control the ports. Their military is far superior to the Lebanese armed forces. That we could swear they have 150,000 rockets aimed at Israel. What we're afraid of, what we think, is probably maybe 180,000, maybe as many as 180,000 rockets. But there's still a minority in Lebanon, correct? Lebanon's a complicated geographic place. You've got Christians who've been persecuted over the last 50 years. You've got Sunni. Many of them are Sunni Muslims who are refugees from Syria. And you've got Shia. But militarily, the ones who have the greatest amount of power are the Shia the Hezbollah, who are funded by Iran to the tune of billions a year. So they are, they are still a minority, though? 
they're they're a minority relative to the total population. But yeah. they have the arms. But they have the power. The arms, the power. Um, they've assassinated political leaders of other factions. In other words, if the Lebanese people, they see in front of their eyes what's happened to Gaza, to Gaza, and the country's been destroyed, the area is destroyed. If they don't want that to happen to Lebanon, they're, they're powerless to do anything to prevent Hezbollah. That is a very fair statement. Militarily, physically, they're powerless to stop the Hezbollah from doing what they want. The challenge to Israel of the Hezbollah, which is the sixth of the Iranian proxy that's been developed by the IRGC to spread the uh, revolution. And one thing I want to say, and I'm going to take a step back for 15 seconds and continue with Hezbollah. What Iran has done for the last 30 years is they've spun a spider's web and enveloped Israel. Israel is what's standing in their way. It's the only thing standing in their way from taking over all of Islam. What, what does that mean, taking over all of Islam? It's very important to the Iranians and to the Shia to control Mecca and Medina. Mecca and Medina are the two holy cities in Islam. And historically, they've always been under the control of Sunni. The Saudi Arabians are Sunni Muslims. That's their goal. That's the real prize. It's not Al-Quds. Al-Quds is the Arabic word for Jerusalem. It's not the Yahuds. Yahud is the Arabic word for Jews. Diminutive term. Diminutive term, yeah. Their real prize is Mecca and Medina. And let's be blunt, it's the Saudi Arabian oil fields. And it's the natural gas reserves that you have in Dubai and Abu Dhabi. Because by conquering Saudi Arabia and the Emiratis, what Iran could do is they would control the majority of the world's energy resources. I'm talking about active resources. I'm not talking about Alaska, which we haven't developed. I'm talking about active resources. They literally could control the world's economy, control the world's sources of energy. That's their goal. And what's standing in their way? Israel. The Saudis are not standing in their way. The Emiratis are not standing in their way. It's Israel. And strategically what they've done is, a way to unite all Arabs, is a way to unite the Sunni and the Shia that hate each other, is blame it on the Jew, blame it on the Yahud, you know, and call, call them the enemy that we have to unite. Common enemy. Common enemy. And in this war, they won't say it publicly because their population doesn't understand this, and their population, after being fed hatred for, for 80 years, is not in a position where they can hear it. But who do you think is pushing the American administration to support Israel, to give Israel the green light? It's the Egyptians, it's the Saudi Arabians, it's the Emiratis, it's the Jordanians, because they have an incredible, incredible fear of Iran. And they also have a fear of the Muslim Brotherhood. The Muslim Brotherhood, which is of the six proxies, is the one Sunni group that's taking Shia money. That's why they hate them the worst. They hate Hamas more than anything, because how dare those Palestinians, who in their mind are the lowest caste on the um, lowest rung on the you know, caste system, how dare they take money from the Shia of all people? And in the Emiratis have expelled the, the Muslim Brotherhood, the Saudis have expelled the Muslim Brotherhood, and the Egyptians had a revolution against the Muslim Brotherhood when Al Sisi took over for Morsi. So these Sunni nations hate the Shia hate the Muslim Brotherhood who are taking money from the Shia, and quietly, not publicly, because their population can't handle it, can't hear it, but quietly, 
behind the scenes, they're the ones who are pushing America to give Israel the green light. So let, let's go back to Hezbollah. They're the, by far the greatest danger to Israel. It's not something which is classified. Israel's missile defense system, whether it's the Iron Dome, whether it's the David Sling, it can't, it's not built to handle all of those rockets. So for instance, Hamas has used, I think they've spent about 12,000 rockets on Israeli population, trying to murder and slaughter innocent Israelis who are going to work or sleeping in their homes. And you see the incredible success of Iron Dome and David Sling against the rockets coming from Gaza. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I just never understood why is it that you never hear in the media about this firing indiscriminately deadly weapons all the time upon Israeli civilians' uh, targets, and there's no protest. Not in Congress, not in the media. Uh, the fact that Israel is successful in thwarting the, by and large, thwarting the missiles doesn't mean that every day they're trying. If they could, they would. It's a terrible indictment of the media that they never talk about this. Think about the damage what 11,000 rockets could have done. And by the way, some of those being killed in Gaza are from rockets that never made it into Israel. Correct. We know the famous story of the, the hospital. hospital. Here's the fear, and it's existential fear. What gives Israel its qualitative military edge, its ability, you know, I'm talking, you know, I'm talking about the, prov the Almighty's providence. How has the Almighty's providence manifested itself? Israel has F-35s, F-16s, that none of its enemies have at this point. The goal of the Hezbollah is to take out the air bases. We all know them, Ramat David, Palmachim, Tel Nof, Nativot. If you can prevent those F-35s and F-16s and F-15s from getting off the ground, then you can pummel Israel. You can cause massive, massive destruction to Israel. On this very, very sober note, I want to curtail this. I can't stop speaking to you. We're going to have to postpone to the next podcast. Is that all right with you? Can I go 10 seconds more? Of course. In, in the, absolutely, we'll go to the next podcast. In the event Israel uses its missile defense system to defend those airstrips, and we'll use the analogy of the Six-Day War of what this means, the most, the most cr crucial asset right now, those airstrips, let's say Israel can defend it. It leaves its towns, it leaves its cities, it leaves its population centers exposed, exposed for massive, massive, massive fatalities. And let's pick it up on the next podcast because I don't. I hate to leave it on a downer. Huh. The goal is not succeed. to leave it on a downer. Yeah. The goal is to talk about the challenge of Hezbollah and how Israel. That, that's the ultimate war. That's the ultimate threat, and how Israel has to deal with that, and how hopefully Israel could defend itself against that. I have no doubt that everyone's going to come back to hear Rabbi Wild. Tell us the good side of all this because right now I'm. A, this is a doomsday situation. Thank you very much. We'll speak to you again the next, next podcast. And before we conclude yet again, it is very rabbinic to conclude several times, an important announcement. Our clever sound engineer has pointed out that we've been in season two for several years. Good catch, Howard. To modestly rectify this inaccuracy, we're going to conclude our exceptionally long season two with another character installment that will drop, God willing, on January 24th about the life and methodology of Rabbi Yehuda Kelimer 
And here's a good reminder to pick up my recently released biography about Rabbi Kellimer, available at my website, www.hanachteller.com, where it may be acquired at a discount. And while you are there, look at all the other titles. After a character installment dropping on January 24, we will go on a short break. That is an announcement that's been labeled as important. Note, Teller from Jerusalem is going on a break to prepare for Season 4. Correct. To compensate for the inaccuracy, we're skipping from Season 2 to Season 4, and we'll resume broadcasting on March 6, 2024. Please God. This affords you listeners an opportunity to catch up on any of the nearly 100 episodes that you may have missed. Each episode is a education that stands alone and need not be listened in sequence. Each and every episode that you will, will teach and touch and is always made more memorable with wit and humor, if I may say so, and very, very spiffy sound effects, music, and pertinent audio insertions. Thanks for listening to Teller from Jerusalem, where this series takes an intelligent and thought-provoking look at the past in order to acquire a perspective on the present. Spread knowledge by giving us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. Join us next time for a brand new episode and be sure to visit tellerfromjerusalem.com where you can find more details about the show and other useful information. Check out the site store and just by inserting the TFJ code, you receive an additional 10% discount off the already very reduced prices of all Hanoch Teller products, books, lectures, and documentaries. And remember, don't forget, you can get Teller from Jerusalem on any podcast platform or go to telefromjerusalem.com.